couple of announcements before we get started. Just a reminder, the Chafer Conference starts in less than two weeks. Two weeks from now, we'll be in the middle of it. March 11th starts on Monday. Folks will start gathering in here for registration about 11 or 11.30 in the morning. The first session is at 1.30, but we start with announcements and things about 15 minutes ahead of that. And then it goes until 9 o'clock each of the, the three nights. This year we have two speakers. Uh, Stephen Gare, who is with Sojourner's Ministry, that's because his name, Gare, means Sojourner in Hebrew. And he's also pastor of a Messianic Jewish uh, church in the Dallas area, and he's a very good speaker. He's going to be talking about uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. And this will be quite good. Everybody will enjoy it and learn a lot. And then also the other speaker is Dr. Mark McGinnis from Baptist Bible Seminary, and he will be speaking on the Old Testament and how to understand it and teach it. it it'll be good. Everybody will learn a lot from that and will enjoy that. So everybody needs to register, please, online at deanbibleministries.org, and we need volunteers. And if you'd like to volunteer to help, there's a place where you can sign up to volunteer and also indicate what you would like to help out with. We need 120 dozen cookies so and other snacks lots of other snacks not just sugar for you won't just get everybody all sugared up also on uh the next men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting will be march 16th at 7:30, and also the picnic will be the annual picnic will be on april the 13th unless it rains which happens more often than not it seems Okay, one thing we need to be aware of as a prayer request, and I'm going to bring these things out <clears throat> on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, is there is a coach, Coach Kennedy, at the Bremerton, Washington School District who was fired because before a football game he would go out onto the field and he would kneel and he would pray for about 15 seconds. And the school district took exception to that. They took him to federal district to, to court and the federal district, or they fired him, and the federal district court upheld his termination on appeal. Uh, the Ninth Circuit, the most liberal uh, appeals court in the country, also validated that. They said because students and fans could see him, then that was a violation of, um, of, of the separation of church and state. So First Liberty has appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, so we need to be in prayer for that decision. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose of this is so that we can be spiritually prepared for our time of study. Scripture says we are to walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, we're walking according to the sin nature, and the way to recover is to confess sin, and then we are forgiven and cleansed. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful everybody who's here arrived safe. We pray those that were out on the road were kept safe. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, for our time together that we can focus our attention upon you and put aside the distractions of life. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for peace in our nation toward Christians that we may be able to not only freely study and teach the word inside of our churches but outside of our churches and that Christian employees can live out their Christian life uh, in the, at their place of employment or uh, <clears throat> their own business without fear of government uh, harassment. Father, we pray for this Coach Kennedy, and we pray for his case. We pray for First Liberty. We pray that for all the different things they're involved in in cases. We pray that you would give them wisdom and skill in the courtroom. We pray that in his case that it would be heard by the Supreme Court and that you would find in his favor and strengthen the understanding and application of the First Amendment in our nation. Father, we pray for us tonight that we can focus on your word and that you'll strengthen, A, our confidence in your word, and B, you'll strengthen our understanding of the Davidic covenant and its significance and why it's so important to understand it as a basic concept in biblical study, and that this in turn will produce, C, a confidence that we have in you and your faithfulness to your promises. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to begin with to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And what we're going to focus on this evening is looking at how the Davidic covenant works itself out afterward. Last time we concluded by looking at the relationship and the connections between the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. I'll review those very quickly tonight. But after God gave this covenant to David, there are a number of of, uh, times subsequent to this where it is foundational in understanding a number of different passages and prophecies related to the Messiah. So we're looking at the Davidic covenant in relation to the prophets. Now in our study of Samuel, we're in this section in Samuel in uh, 2 Samuel 7 where the covenant is given. We've talked about it last time in terms of the exegetical context. Just what is said in verses 8 through 17, what are the basic stipulations that God made, the promises he made uh, to David. Then we looked at the Davidic covenant and its relation to the Abrahamic covenant. There are two more things we need to do. The third thing, which we did not get to last time, is to look at how the Davidic covenant is referred to and is used in the prophets, in the major prophets and the minor prophets subsequent to the time of David. And then last, we're going to see how this promise of the seed 
is developed. It's really interesting. This is some of the most fascinating material. And as I've been going back and looking at this, of course, you know, because you've heard me teach through a number of things related to Messianic prophecies over the last several years, uh, what's interesting is as I'm digging through stuff today and I'm looking up footnotes, I'm finding other books that I have on the bookshelf that go in even more detail on a number of these things. And, and I really needed about, oh, 24 more hours to study to prepare tonight, but we're not going to get that far anyway. So it just means we'll be studying this for a few more weeks. But it's just so fascinating to see all of the interconnections that are played out with Messianic prophecies and with the Davidic covenant. What you'll see, and I'll reference it tonight, we won't get into some of the aspects of it, but one of the more obscure prophecies in the Old Testament are those that are in the four oracles of Balaam, the four prophecies of Balaam. And in the fourth prophecy, the one that many people are more familiar with, he prophesies the star and the scepter, and both refer to the to the Messiah. There's some problems with how some of it is translated due to some glitches in the Masoretic text that were uh, one of the things we've learned and studied. I've pointed out in the past is the Masoretic text had a has had a very overt prejudice against messianic prophecies, and so often. And we'll see one situation tonight. Often they would just change the vowels in a word, and it would change it to another word. And in some cases, it would make a verse completely meaningless. In other places, it wiped out the allusions to previous Messianic prophecies. What's interesting is some of the key words that you find back in Balaam in in Numbers chapter 24 get picked up in these later prophecies. So that if you know what the Hebrew says in earlier prophecies, you recognize that what is said in these prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Hosea and Amos, uh, that they just use the same vocabulary, but they ex- expect their readers to be knowledgeable about what they said. You read the word, you go, oh, yeah, that's the same word that's over here. They're connecting the dots, and the dots are the words. So what we'll do is we'll end up with the promise of the seed. And in uh, two sections where we deal with the prophecy in Amos chapter 9 and the prophecy in Acts 15 that quotes Amos 9, and then we'll go to Galatians 3.16 where Paul connects the promise of the seed singular to Jesus as the seed of David This goes back to some interesting things in the Abrahamic covenant, which sort of connects all of them together. So that's going to be fun when we get to the end and see how all these uh, different promises connect. And what that does for us is to give us greater confidence in the divine origin of the Word of God and in the prophecies related to the Messiah. When I sit and I study and I see these things and start learning these things, I'm just, you, you, the Bible's a pretty wonderful book to begin with. But then you start seeing these, these that, that deep down in the details of the language, in the original languages, there's these little interconnections that, that really flesh things out for us. It's just amazing. It is 
it's just fun to, to get into these things. So this is where we are and our basic outline. So we looked at what the Bible teaches about covenants, and the main thing to remember about a covenant is it's a legal document. There were legal documents in the time that the Bible was written, in the time of Moses, at the time of Abraham, and uh, later. And so these covenants that were these these basic uh, forms, legal forms of the contracts, come into play to help us understand uh, the structure of what is going on in the, in the biblical text. You can understand the biblical text without it. People did for years. But knowing that, it just gives us a, a, it's a little frosting on the cake and helps us to understand a few more things about what, what is going on. So as I pointed out here, the word covenant's not used in the Davidic covenant passage in 2 Samuel 7, but it is used in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Now that is a key verse that we'll be looking at tonight, is 2 Samuel 23, 5. We won't go there right away, but we'll get there. And also in, oh, I didn't correct that typo from last week. That should be Psalm 89, 35 and Psalm 132, 12 to describe the uh, Davidic promise. You know, if I don't change that then it won't get changed. And I can't even, I can't get things to work right now. Let me see here. Okay. I'm just going to change that to a capital P, and we're done. All right. Now we won't run into that again. Okay, the structure of the covenants. The key idea is that these are promises. The, they're promissory covenants. That's another technical term that is used in the, discussion of promises, and as a promissory covenant, that relates to unconditional covenants. There are promises that are made that haven't yet been fulfilled, but will be fulfilled because they're part of an unconditional contract that God has promised alone to fulfill apart from a commitment from the recipient. So as I pointed out last time, Abraham sleeps through the whole covenant-cutting ceremony with God, and God is symbolized by a smoking torch going between the animals that have been cut in half, and that symbolizes that God alone binds himself to fulfill that covenant, making it a an unconditional and eternal covenant. As we see, that's the foundational covenant for the Old Testament. It also is a foundational covenant for understanding all of future human history all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom. And it's broken down and developed in terms of three covenants, the land covenant, which is not fulfilled until Israel comes into the land. And the Davidic covenant, which is not fulfilled until the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom. And that's when the new covenant is sworn to. That's what begins a covenant. There are many covenants in the Bible where there's no sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice that starts the covenant. Jesus' sacrifice was the foundation for the covenant on the cross, but it doesn't begin the covenant. The covenant begins when an oath is taken, and that is taken place. We'll look at that later on sometime in Ezekiel when the Lord returns and there's a judgment that takes place, and he swears an oath of loyalty to Israel. That initiates, inaugurates 
the new covenant, which means that most of the Christians, you know, think they're living in the new covenant now, and they, they, they're going around talking about doing things for the kingdom and all kinds of other nonsense because they don't have a dispensational, dispensationally correct understanding of these things. So that brought us to the, what the Bible teaches about the Davidic covenant. Now, if you go to talk to a lot of people, they'll say, well, why do I need to know this? Because when you get below the surface of the Bible and you decide there's a little bit more than just talking about the love of Jesus, we realize that, that we have to understand that God has legally bound himself to do certain things in human history through these covenants. <clears throat> Tom McComsky, who used to be a professor of New Testament and theology at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, at least back in the 80s and 90s, states in his book on the covenants of promise, one cannot deny the monumental, listen to his language here, the monumental importance of the second, uh, of second Samuel 7 in the historical outworking of the promises. You know, what he says in that the whole paragraph this is taken from is you can't underestimate the significance of the Davidic covenant in terms of the Old Testament. He goes on to say it rivals in grandeur the first majestic statement of the promise to Abraham. Where's that found? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It rivals in grandeur the first majestic statement of the promise to Abraham as well as the impassioned messianic predictions of the prophets. It is a mountain peak in redemptive history. Now, I would bet that if you phrased this in such a way where people didn't know what it was and said, to which covenant does this refer, they would either guess the Abrahamic covenant or the new covenant, but they wouldn't guess the Davidic covenant. But if you look at the scriptures, you see so many times through, through, the, uh, new t- through the Old Testament that there are allusions and references to the Davidic covenant. Why? Because it focuses on the promise of the seed, and the promise of the seed is the promise of the Messiah. So almost every messianic prophecy is an allusion to the Davidic covenant. And we'll, we're not going to look at all of them, trust me, but we're going to look at a number of them. So <clears throat> we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, and we saw that the key terms in the Abrahamic covenant were land, seed, and blessing. God promised a specific piece of real estate to Israel in perpetuity. It's conditioned in the uh, Mosaic covenant on obedience, and he will make them obedient in the new covenant. So the land is promised. The seed, it's an interesting word because it's a collective noun. A collective noun means that it can, it's like the word deer. You can have one deer, you can have a thousand deer. It's a collective noun. So you really have to look at context to determine whether the noun is talking about one person, one descendant, or whether it's talking about many descendants. And that's what we'll get to when we come to the end when we talk about the Galatians 3.16 passage. And then that it is through that seed that the whole world is going to be blessed. And each of those three elements is then developed in subsequent covenants. The land covenant in Deuteronomy 29, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 
and then the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Someone asked me last week, who knows that on Friday mornings, we've got a group of pastors. John's usually there, part of the group, and we have around 20 to 25 who join in every week, and we've been studying two recent books on the New Covenant, by both by dispensationalists, and the some of the issues on the application of the New Covenant or the relation of the New Covenant to the church age are extremely controversial, and if you get a room of 30 dispensational scholars together, you'll probably have 10, 10, and 10. 10 will hold one view, 10 will hold a second view, and 10 will hold a third view. It is probably the one view in dispensational theology that has the most disagreement. So we've been working our way through it, having different uh, uh, professors and scholars come and, and present their papers to us on Friday mornings. And somebody said, well, are you going to you know, summarize all of that for us in class? And I said, no. It's going to take me another 18 months to sift through what I've worked through the last nine months. I feel like now that we're at the end of this extremely granular study, wouldn't you say granular is a good word, John? Very Very granular. Now that we're at the end, I think I know what the issues are, and I have to go back and reread everything to figure out what they were actually saying. So it's a lot of fun. That's what Bible study is all about. The Davidic covenant expands on the seed promise. It's given to David in 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 to 16, promise an eternal house. Now, that's an important word to watch as we go through the, um, the language of these subsequent uh, prophecies, an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne. All three have to come together at the same time. So last time, just I'm just going to run through these very quickly because of time, we saw that there's an overlap or an expansion uh, between the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants in a lot of ways. Both David and Abraham, uh, God promises to both David and Abraham that he will make their names great. God promises to both Abraham and David that certain security for the nation, for their presence in the land. God promised uh, David offspring that would culminate in an eternal ruler. God promised uh, innumerable descendants to Abraham. So there's uh, references to their descendants. God promised to uh, Abraham that there would be royal descendants, that some of his descendants would be kings. And God promised to David that there would be royal descendants and one would rule forever. God promised to bless both David and Abraham. God declared himself to be the God of Israel and in both both covenants and that he would be their God and they would be his people. And then both covenants are said to be eternal covenants, never-ending, unconditional covenants. God says in Psalm 89, as sort of an introduction to the basic idea of its eternality, Psalm 89, 34 to 37, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, see, he's not, it's not a mutual swearing. And what, uh, and he says, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, 
even like the faithful witness in the sky. Now, I pointed out last time, Psalm 89 is not written by David. Psalm 89 is written after the return of the Jews under uh, under Zerubbabel and later under maybe under Ezra and Nehemiah, somewhere in that period. And it is designed to reflect upon how faithful God is to Israel because they have been so unfaithful. They have apostatized. They have been idolatrous. Their, their false worship in the fertility cults has just been vile. They have sacrificed their children on the, in the fires of Moloch. All of these things that God continues to be faithful and he doesn't uh, vacate the covenant. He continues to uh, work it out. And so this is part of, of the meditation of Psalm 89, 34. God is faithful and will continue uh, to provide for us. So we see that this is an unconditional and eternal covenant and that the promise of God will endure no matter what failures come. And that is the same for us. That is one of the takeaways that we have from this is that God is faithful to his promise no matter how much we fail, no matter how much uh, sin we get into, no matter how long we're in carnality, God is faithful. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us because Christ paid the penalty for every single sin we'll ever commit in human history. God's omniscience knew every one of them. He didn't forget one. He didn't uh, pour out all the sins of the world and then some years later say, oops, I forgot one. He paid, Christ paid for every single, uh, every single sin. And so uh, God's promise of salvation is unconditional. Uh, three passages, uh, three other passages emphasize this eternality. Second Samuel twenty-three five. We'll come back to this in detail in a little bit. Although my house, this is David writing, uh, he says, although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation. And all my desire, will he not make it, and really this should be translated, will he not make it branch, or will he not make it fruitful? We'll see why I say it that way in just a minute. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-five. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, that then is talking about after they return to the land, not the return to the land that occurred in 536 in the subsequent years, there were several waves of the returnees, but they weren't large waves. They, this wasn't a huge group of people. Even at the time of Christ, the Jewish population in the area of, of, of the promised land was <clears throat> probably less than a, a, a few hundred thousand and uh, maybe a million, but it certainly did not incorporate but maybe 25 or 30 percent of all the Jews in the world at that time. And whereas today we have a little over 49 percent of Jews worldwide are in Israel. That's remarkable. God is definitely doing something. Then a third verse is on Isaiah 55, 3, incline your ear and come to me. This is God's invitation uh, through Isaiah. Hear and your soul shall live. And see, that's another example of when God says, listen, he doesn't just mean let your auditory nerves be stimulated. When he says, 
do you hear me? He doesn't just mean, did you hear the words I spoke? He means, did you obey me? Did you do what I said to do? Uh, so hear, in other words, hear and respond in belief, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Now, he's already made the covenant, but he's talking about bringing it to fulfillment. This is in Isaiah 55, 3. So as we look at all of this, one of the things that we uh, need to understand and that we went through already is this connection between the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants. God's commission for Abraham to move out of Ur the Chaldees and to go to a land that God would show him is referenced many other times in the Old Testament, but it is referenced in the prophets in a way that, as you'll see, is connected by different words and language back to um, the Abrahamic covenant is, is connected to the Davidic covenant. And I want to just pull some of these things together for you as we, uh, as we go, go forward. In Isaiah 29, 22, God is affirming and reminding them about the eternality of the Abrahamic covenant despite Israel's sin. So let, uh, we probably ought to just look at each of these passages in context a little bit, which means it'll take us a little longer. Um, the passage <clears throat> starts off with a message of condemnation to Jerusalem called Ariel, like the term Ariel Ministries, the Lion of God. And this is a term where David, woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. What does that call to mind? At the very beginning here, the focus is on David. And as you go through uh, this chapter in Isaiah chapter 29, and there's various judgments that are uh, brought out and mentioned, then there is a connection at the end of the chapter to Abraham. So th this chapter connects these two covenants together. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. And what is said here, it reinforces the eternality of the Abrahamic covenant to the city of David and the people of David. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham, I underline the words for the patriarchs here, redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow or sanctify, set apart my name, and hallow the Holy One of Jacob, and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained uh, will learn doctrine. So this is just a reminder of the eternality of the Abrahamic covenant, and as such, it's still in effect, and as such, it still applies to, will apply to uh, the seed of David. Then we look at another passage in the midst of <clears throat> in the midst of a judgment section, 
And this is Isaiah 41, and Isaiah 41.10 is a verse that many of us have memorized, but probably few of us have taken the time to uh, go back and to uh, examine. But in this passage, we have reference to Israel, for example, in uh, in 41.8, but you, are Israel, are my servant. Jacob, and if you look at the New King James, it says, Jacob, whom I I chose. But remember, we've had our study in Ephesians 1, and the best way to translate uh, Bakar here, as <clears throat> Moshe Weinfeld says in covenant context, it should be appointed. Uh, Jacob, whom I have appointed for, a reminder of the mission, uh, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions. So see, this is talking about a time uh, in the future when they're restored from the Babylonian captivity. And said to you, you are my servant, I've appointed you and have not cast you away. Fear not, I, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, you, yea, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, this is a promise that is given to uh, Israel in the midst of their uh, disobedience. Isaiah, remember, Isaiah writes around 750. Let's just use that as a benchmark date. He is a little bit later, just a little bit. Their lives may have overlapped because we don't know that much about Jonah, and John's been teaching on Jonah. And so they're, they're, they're contemporaries. Hosea is a contemporary. Uh, Amos is a contemporary. All of these prophets were at the same time, and uh, Amos and uh, Isaiah is announcing judgment on both the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. He's primarily a prophet to the southern kingdom. So this is, this is uh, important, and, but they re, they're reaffirming the fact that God is true to his promise in the Abrahamic covenant, and it's the basis for their confidence in God's continued faithfulness to Israel no matter uh, what they do, no matter how much they fail. And then in Hosea 1, uh, 10 and 11, you see another connection that comes along. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be, this is still talking in the future, as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So this is talking about a future time when God has turned his back on Israel, now they are being restored, and there will be a time in the future where there are, their population is without number, like the sand of the sea. Where does that language derive? That comes out of the Abrahamic covenant. So this, these, this kinds of illusions are designed to bring that into our, our thinking. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, who's the one head going to be? David. Okay? So we see how these things are, are going to be uh, tied together and and connected for us. So again and again, as we go through uh, these promises, I mean, go through the prophets, we'll be reminded of the promises to Abraham and David, and they won't be 
they won't be nullified by God. And in the Davidic covenant, we have the seed promise that keeps cropping up. It's the fulfillment of that seed. And in Galatians 3.16, remember, that's eventually where we'll end up. Galatians 3.16, Paul makes the point that God promised to, to Abraham seed and not seeds, not plural. And so because it's singular, that refers to the Messiah. That's who that passage is talking about is Jesus. So this connects the dot. If seed singular, referring to someone singular, uh, comes coming out of the Abrahamic covenant, is expanded on in the Davidic covenant, and then um, it's the basis for the Messianic prophecies, and then after Jesus, Paul comes along and says that seed refers to Jesus. It just ties a bow around everything and shows how all of the Bible is interdependent and <clears throat> and interconnected. So as we look at this, one of the other passages among the major prophets that develops this is in this eternality idea is in Jeremiah 33, 20 to 22. So turn over there because we're going to look at various things that are happening in Jeremiah 33. We're going to look sort of uh, in the middle of the section and then we'll go back and look at what precedes it and what comes, what comes after it. So in Jeremiah chapter 33, there's an emphasis on the permanence of God's covenant. In verse 19, we read, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. In other words, if you're going to change the order of day and night, if you're going to change the length of day and night, if you're going to change all of the physical laws that lead to day and night, if you can break my covenant with the day and with the night so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant." So see, these other passages that I look to are all designed to bring us to a point where we understand that this language that is used is a language of eternality, of forever and ever. That <clears throat> if you can't change day and night, you can't change the covenant with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. That's the core part of the of the promise. There will be an eternal house or an eternal dynasty. So there will be a, always a son of David who could reign on the throne. But notice the next part deals with the Levites. I bet you if you're reading through your Bible and you read this, if you weren't falling asleep, it caused you to ask a question. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers... See, there's a covenant there. He says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. Where does that language come from? That comes out of the Abrahamic covenant. So will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Now, that is, it doesn't come out and spell it out, but that's a hint, a foreshadowing that there are going to be Levitical priests functioning in the kingdom. 
Now, they don't function according to the laws and the sacrifices of Leviticus. Some of those are not restated in Ezekiel uh, 40 to 48, but there will be a restoration of a sacrificial system because people will need to be ritually cleansed, even though they're saved, just as people were saved in the Old Testament, even though that's paid for. It is a training aid. It doesn't mean that they have to give sacrifices to be truly um, cleansed. They can confess sin anywhere in the world, but if they're going to come into the presence of God, there has to be this reinforcement of the ritual cleansing just as in the just as in the Old Testament. But I thought this was interesting because it talks about the eternality of the covenant, the eternality of the covenant with David. It connects it to the Abrahamic covenant and a promise that there will that God will multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Now, I want you to look back just a few verses. Like I said, we're going to go right into the middle of the passage and then back up to get look at what comes before it. And we'll just go back to verse, I went to verse, I'll go to verse 14. The slide goes to 15, but I'll, I'll uh, start at 14. Behold, the days are coming. Now, whenever you see that phrase and you see that language, we have to think in terms of the end times. This is talking about the end times. Remember, there's the end times for Israel, and there's the end times for the church. There's the latter latter day for Israel and the latter days for the church. So we have to keep those separate and keep those distinct. Here, he's talking about the latter days of Israel. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And those promises are fulfilled. Remember the chart, promises made in the Old Testament, and then they're fulfilled when Jesus returns and establishes the kingdom. Then he says in verse 15, in those days and at that time, usually you will find the phrase at those days, or you'll see the phrase at that time, both of which normally indicate uh, unless there's some contextual reason otherwise, they normally indicate something's going to happen at the end times. And here you have both of those phrases, so that's an, an emphasis. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. This is uh, talking about the characteristic of this branch. It is a righteous branch. <clears throat> what will he do? He's going to rule a certain way. That's the next, the next stanza. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. He will be a righteous branch. He's from, the, from David. He'll be a righteous ruler who will rule in righteousness and have righteous judgments in the earth. And then he says, in those days, that is, in those days at that time when when this branch appears, this righteous branch appears, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. So there's a parallelism there because Jerusalem, technically it's kind of on the border, it sort of overlaps and is in between Benjamin and, Jer- and Judah, but, but primarily it's viewed as being in Judah. Jerusalem will dwell safely. So Jerusalem often is used in parallelism to Judah. And this is the name by which she will be called, Yahweh 
Um, Yahweh, our righteousness. So God, the righteous God, righteous covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, will rule over Israel at, at this uh, time. Uh, Yahweh Tzedekinu, the Lord, our righteousness. So that's 15 and 16 introduces us to David and to this Davidic descendant called the branch. We're going to have to investigate that term a little bit. And then in verse 17 we read, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now we already saw that he restates that when we get down into verse um, verse 21. So he's he's repetitive here to make sure people get the point. This is the Abrahamic covenant. You will have an eternal dynasty. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So this means he's going to have an, an, a never-ending succession of sons, or he, it's going to end in a son who is eternal. So there's a hint here of the, uh, the fact that this is an eternal son. Eternality is a characteristic of deity. And then it states also that nor shall the priests of Levites lack a, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Now remember, burnt offerings were an offering that's given to indicate one's total commitment to God. Everything is burned up in the sacrifice. Everything goes to God. And the grain offerings were fellowship offerings to express fellowship with God. So neither of these are atonement type, you know, substitutionary death of Christ type of, of sacrifices. So this, here Jeremiah connects David, the Davidic covenant, to the branch, and to the future establishment of the kingdom. So as we look at this, we've been introduced now to this concept of the branch. So before we get into that, I want to introduce another question that we need to be thinking about as we go forward, okay? When we think about the Abrahamic covenant, actually any of the covenants, but since we're talking about the Davidic covenant, we're targeting that, how should we interpret this covenant? There's debate, and it has been debate down through the centuries over this very question, how to interpret the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the land covenant, the new covenant, because those who hold to some form of replacement theology think that when Israel rejected the Messiah, that God cut them off, nullified the covenants, uh, transferred the blessings to the church, and says, to hell with the Jews, I'm going to work through the Gentiles, and that became a justification for Christian anti-Semitism throughout the Middle Ages and on up to the present. And that is complete garbage. That is not biblical whatsoever. God made these as eternal covenants, and they should be interpreted literally and not in an allegorical fashion. But that's how many people do. Just go over to Israel sometime, and if we go down to Bethlehem uh, and we meet some of the Palestinian Christians down there, just get in a discussion with them as to whether the land belongs to the Jews that God promised it to them, and it still belongs to them. And you'll, you'll get a good lesson in allegorical hermeneutics very quickly in a very intense, passionate debate. So we have to understand this question and think about this question. How does the Bible uh, 
use the Abrahamic covenant. Use the Bible to be the standard for how we interpret the Scripture. Does the Bible use and interpret the Davidic covenant allegorically, or does it interpret it literally? And so we're going to see that as we go through all of these different passages, that the covenant with David was understood in a literal fashion. He's going to have eternal descendants. He's going to have an eternal throne. He's going to have uh, an eternal uh, kingdom. And so that is how what we'll see as we go through all of these Old Testament passages. It's always a, a literal interpretation. Then when we get into the New Testament, we will also find uh, literal application, a literal interpretation of the passage. Uh, in the New Testament, you'll discover that there are over 59 references to David in the New Testament. And David is taken literally. You talk to a lot of uh, the minimalist archaeologists and scholars, the liberal scholars over in Israel and the liberal scholars in America, and they question whether David ever existed. He's just some sort of idealized king. And oops, a few years ago they uh, discovered on um, on a stele the reference to the house of David. So that made them sit back a little bit and say, well, maybe there was. Now they're discovering the palace of David down in the old city of David. And that too is causing them to rethink a little bit. There's not only debate about that, but there's huge debate that's going on about whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch or not. And it may surprise you to realize that over 80% or 90% of scholars worldwide reject Mosaic authorship for the Torah. They, and Moses couldn't have written it. He didn't even know how to write. He just came out. Those people, they were just a bunch of shepherds, and he was a Midianite shepherd. He didn't know how to write. They just didn't, they, they reject the whole idea that he was brought up and educated in the house of Pharaoh. Uh, they, in fact, they, they question whether he would have uh, actually existed or not. They, they, they're not sure David did. They've got a little ar- archaeological uh, evidence now that possibly he did, but anything before David, of course, is just all uh, legend and myth, and it's all been made up. In the next couple of weeks, right after the Chafer Conference, uh, <clears throat> Veritas University, which was founded by Norm Geisler, some of you are familiar with, uh, we used to call him Storm and Norman, uh, that uh, Norm Geisler, who's about 87 or 88 now, uh, wrote... I don't know, he's written 60, 70 books, I think, and he's just a, a premier apologist. And he founded Veritas University, and they have produced what looks like a, a quality film, documentary. And I recognize it has on their webpage, uh, you can go to it. We sent out a link. We need to send that email out two or three more times before that comes up so you can get tickets. But it's going to show on the Thursday night after the conference when you're just brain dead and exhausted. But we don't have Bible class that Thursday night. So you can you can go then. Or you can go Saturday at noon after the conference. Or you can uh, skip Bible class the next Tuesday night and go to it. So your best options are to go on Thursday night. Uh, and I'm going to go on Thursday night, actually. I think I may maybe may have uh, I invited one of my <clears throat> Jewish friends uh to go with me. He's um uh he's the president of Chair King and 
he and I were in school together from first grade through high school, and so we met the other day at an event, and I said, hey, would you like to go to this? Because I know something that mo- even most of his Jewish friends don't know. He's got a Ph.D. in Josephus studies from Hebrew Union uh, Seminary in Cincinnati. Now, that's pretty pretty obscure, but that's a guy who'd really get into this. So um, we're going to go to that, and that will be on probably that Thursday night, but uh, I encourage everybody to go to it. You'll learn a lot about what's going on. Randy Price is one of the guys that's going to be mentioned in the film. And for people who are listening to this five or ten years from now, it's probably going to be available in DVD by then. But for now, we can go see it in in um, in, in in the theater. So uh, that's, that would be a good thing. Let's go back to where we are. We're talking about David and the Davidic Covenant and the significance of David. And one of the passages I mentioned last time and already a couple of times today that's important to understand in relation as a corollary and a confirmation of the Davidic covenant is 2 Samuel 23. So turn with me now back to 2 Samuel 23. See, this is like like the kids doing sword drill, and you're learning where all the books of the Bible are, if you don't know. 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is a psalm that David writes at the end of his life to praise God for how God has blessed him. It's interesting. He says in verse 5, although my house, now where did, where, that, why is that term significant? That refers to his dynasty. Key in on that term house. Although my house is not so with God. We'll pick up the context in just a minute. Uh, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? That's what it says in the New King James. It really should be translated, will he not make it branch or will he not make it fruitful, something along those lines. Now, just to be um, sort of contextual here, go back to the first verse. The first verse, right, uh, the writer of Second Samuel says, now these are the last words of David. So he writes this at the end of his life. And then... If you look at the text as it's translated before you from the Masoretic text, there are five things that are said about him. He's, first, he's David. Second, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Notice both Jacob, which and Israel are used here, and it refer, and, but Judah is not. Remember, David's from the tribe of Judah. So by using Jacob and Israel, he's including all the tribes of Israel. Now, these are the five things that are said about David. His name, David, that he's the son of Jesse. Jesse is his father, and that will be important because some of the passages that talk about the branch are talking about a stump, the root of Jesse, and out of that springs a branch. So it's talking about his his uh, patrilineal heritage. The man raised on high, anointed by the God of Jacob, 
who is the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, I'm not going to get into some of the translation issues on the other lines because they're not, not that significant, but that phrase, the man raised on high, seems to make sense. He's elevated to the position of the throne of God. But there are some problems here. And the problem is that the word on is a translation of this Hebrew word here. Now, this first letter is sort of a glottal stop. It's the ayin, and it's just usually transliterated as an apostrophe. And then the second consonant is this one, which is the lamid or the l. Hebrew did not have vowel points. Now, a vowel point is what you see under the ayin. It's just a little horizontal line. But if you notice over here, you have the same word, but it has what looks like a a ta, a T, a small T underneath the first letter. That is a, one's a long A, the other's a short A. And so uh, you tra- you have these two words. Now, there were not any vowel points when this was written. There weren't vowel points added until the Masoretes came along uh, much later, in several centuries into the Christian era. Remember I said earlier that the Masoretes had an anti-Messianic bias. So where they could, if they would change a vowel point, it would change the meaning of the word so that it would minimize the Messianic emphasis of the text. So all you had was the same, same consonant. So you have to decide, well, is this all or al? And the first one here... It's not the word that's found in the Masoretic text, but it would be translated with regard to or concerning. So that would mean, thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man concerning the anointed of the God of Jacob, which is a very clear statement that David recognized he was a prophet and that he wrote his Psalms and they were prophecies of the Messiah. Now, if you change the vowel point to uh, a comets, you have al. And this would just simply mean on high. Now, that still seems to make sense in the text, but you have now changed it from being messianic to being non-messianic. Isn't that interesting? So that anointed now refers to David instead of the Messiah. These, I, I love finding out little things like this. So that's how it begins. So thus says the man, uh, thus is the man, uh, what, what did I say? Thus is the man concerning the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. So he's claiming that it's not his words, but God the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing. You have the God of Jacob mentioned, Elohim, the God of Jacob mentioned, and then you have the spirit of the Lord mentioned. So how many divine persons do you have here? you got... Two, you've got the God of Jacob, and you've got the Spirit of the Lord, and then you have the anointed. So you've got all three. You've got a reference to the Trinity here, all three. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Now, there, during the 
period, intertestamental period, the word devar would be translated over into a uh, an Aramaic word that became part of a doctrine that referred to, they developed this whole scenario of the word so that when you see these phrases, like his word was on my tongue, it's referring to the to another person of the Trinity, the divine messenger. And that would apply to John 1. 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His Word uh, was on my tongue. The God of Israel said to me, the Rock of Israel. So Rock of Israel, God of Israel, God of Jacob are all the same person. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth. What image comes to your mind there? This is the image of, of, of something that's shooting up. Okay, just the imagery there. And then it says in, in verse, verse 5, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation, all my desire. And then he asks this question, will he not make it increase? And literally, that would be translated, will God not make it branch or shoot up? Now, this word is not used in those, that previous verse, but what I did was I put this down here, samak is the verb, uh, that is used here. It's in the hifil, which means will he not cause it to sprout or to grow or to branch? And notice it's spelled with a, a tzayin, a mem, and a chet. So tzamach. You just uh, change your vowel points a little bit, and it's semach. It's the same word. It's the same vowels. I mean, same consonants, excuse me. And that becomes the title for the Messiah in the prophets, the branch. It comes right out of uh, David's psalm about the covenant that God has made with him. So that's your connection. You've got this word suddenly popping up over in the prophets, and you have four key places where it's used. It refers to the branch of the Lord in Isaiah 4.2. It refers to the branch of David in Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6 refers to my servant, the branch, in Zechariah 3.8, and the man whose name is the branch in Zechariah 6.12. So you think maybe this is significant for understanding the Davidic covenant and showing how Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah all connect back to the Davidic covenant through the vocabulary where they're using this word, the branch. Now, Isaiah 4.2 is the first one we're going to look at. And that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Now, in that day would refer to what? In the day of the kingdom. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. This is really an interesting verse. I didn't break it down in parallelism, but in that day, the branch of the Lord, branch of the Lord is in parallelism to the phrase, the fruit of the earth. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth will be excellent and appealing. So excellent and appealing are parallel to beautiful, beautiful and glorious. 
And then we're told those of Israel who have escaped. What did they escape? They escaped the wrath of the Lord and the tribulation. So this is talking about the branch of the Lord will be revealed in all of his beauty and glory as he rules uh, at that time, and it will be a t- and he will be ruling over those who escaped the tribulation. Now the phrase "fruit of the Lord" is another interesting phrase, the fruit of the land rather, and it is translated "fruit of the earth." But guess what? Earth is the Hebrew word uh, "gay," which can be translated as "earth." And when you think of earth, what do you think of? You think of the world. Okay, the earth, or you think of maybe the soil. Well, if you translate it the fruit of the land, all of a sudden it takes on a different connotation, doesn't it? He's the fruit of the land. Now, why would I say that? I would say that because the same phrase is used in Numbers 13.26 when the 12 spies have gone into the land and they come back and they give their report. They, bring, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. It's that which the land produces. Uh, Deuteronomy one twenty five. they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. So that's where you have that phrase. It refers to that which is produced by the land. Guess what? You also have this phrase in the New Testament. You have it in Hebrews 7.14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Now that phrase arose uh, from Judah in the Greek means is produced out of out of Judah, and so it, it has the idea the the uh, uh, the Greek word there has the idea of sprouting up or growing out of something. It's the Greek word anatello, which means to grow up, to spring up as a plant out of the soil. So it is evident that our Lord sprang up from Judah. This is talking about his humanity, that he came from the tribe of Judah. And so the the, the language in Isaiah uh, 4.2 is talking about, A, it's talking about the humanity of the Lord, but there's something else that's going on here because if you look at the context leading up to Isaiah 4.2, you look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5 down through 4, 1, and it is a condemnation of Israel. In, in uh, 2, starting in 2, 5, you have this warning of the day of the Lord and warning about judgment coming. And what do you find? You find this condemnation for you have forsaken your people. Um, no, that's a... Your, um, Isaiah's talking about how God has turned his back on, 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 on his people, on Jacob, because they are filled with Eastern ways. They've bought into all the Eastern religions. They are filled with, they are soothsayers like the Philistines. They're pleased with the children of foreigners. The land is full of silver and gold. They're all about uh, materialism, all these various things. And there's, there's a warning that comes uh, all through that period. It describes all the horrors of idolatry and how it corrupted the people. This continues down into chapter 3 talks about the future judgment of Judah and uh, Jerusalem and is all a warning of that until it comes down to 4.1. And there we, he says, and in that day, in what day? In the day of this coming judgment. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and they'll say, we will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. 
You don't have to, you don't have to be our meal ticket. You don't have to take us shopping to get food. We're, we're, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves. We just want to be called by your name to take away our reproach. Their reproach because they don't have a husband. But their reproach is also because of their sin, which is which they've been a part of that's spelled out in the previous two chapters. So it 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 sets the stage for the fact that there needs to be a cleansing of the reproach of sin. And that's where you get this prophecy in that day, the day when there needs to be a cleansing of sin. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. He will bring cleansing of sin into the nation. Well, who can cleanse from sin? Only God. Only God can forgive sin. And so this brings out the divine aspect of the branch. And so we have a human aspect and we have a divine aspect that are part of this imagery and the way it is applied by Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 4.2. Well, we'll hit that a little more next time, but this just begins to get us into Isaiah, and we're going to see how the Davidic covenant is the background for understanding the prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 14, also in, um, in I- Isaiah uh, 9, 6, and 7. We have the background is the Davidic covenant, and we'll go through a few others, and then we'll get into the fun stuff in Amos and Acts and Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians 3.16 in Genesis. So that will be next next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to see these wonderful prophecies, how they're interwoven, interconnected, interdependent, and how you have tied them together with the words that are used so that we can have great confidence in our understanding of the Uh, Davidic covenant as literal and as eternal, and that it will be fulfilled in that messianic personage who is a descendant of David, who is a son of David, who will rule over your people Israel. Father, help us to uh, be strengthened spiritually by understanding these things and that our confidence in your word will continue to expand. In Christ's name, amen.